John chapter 13 begins with really an amazing scene. Jesus and his disciples have gathered around a table. They've gathered to celebrate the Passover Seder together. Since later this very evening, Jesus will end up being betrayed by Judas, arrested in the garden, tried in a kangaroo court, and then crucified. We find him here in the Last Supper, pouring out his heart to these men he spent so much time with, knowing his time with them was short. While John 13 and 14 record the dialogue that occurs around this upper room table during the Seder itself, chapter 14 closes with Jesus telling these men, Arise, let us go from here. Now what's interesting is the next movement presented in the Gospel of John, we find in chapter 18 when John says that when Jesus had spoken these words, that he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. In the setting for this scene, where the activities of this evening continue, Jesus and the disciples, for where we're at, they have left the upper room, the close of chapter 14. They've made their way along the winding streets of Jerusalem. The hour is late. You can imagine the city calm. It is Passover. This entourage makes their way to the western gate of the temple. Jesus stops, picks up their conversation, specifically does this because the backdrop was this massive door, the western gate, adorned with this golden vine, which hung across the expanse. You had these clusters of golden grapes, as tall as a man, and it's with that that Jesus stops, and he turns through the men, and he says, guys, chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. They are gathered them and thrown them into the fire. They are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. We covered all that last Sunday and so we pick up things with verse 9. Jesus continuing, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Again, if you go back to the very beginning of this discussion, the beginning, the opening of chapter 13, as John, who's writing as an old man many years later, reminisces about this final night, this final night with Jesus, even more than what Jesus says that evening, John was struck. He could never shake the love that Jesus had for them. It's a reoccurring theme. In John 13, verse 1, we read that when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, kind of a summary statement here, John says that having loved his own who were in the world, speaking of them, John says he loved them to the end. There is no mistaking the fact that Jesus' incredible love for these men had become a central, a repeated theme 
throughout their conversation this final night. Now, in the context of abiding, Jesus makes here one of the most incredible statements in his entire ministry. Look back at what the verses that we read. Jesus says, and don't miss it, he tells them, As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. That's an incredible statement. And don't miss the astounding implications of what this means. In describing the essence of his love for the disciples, his love for you, his love for me, Jesus compares that love to the love that his heavenly father had for him. That's a mind meld. Like in a way, Jesus is literally telling them, my love for you is the same as the Father's love for me. And to what degree has the Father loved the Son? The Father loved Jesus with a perfect love. It was a lasting love. A love that never changed. Nor was it ever deterred. God's love for Jesus was never predicated upon anything that Jesus did or didn't do. In fact, the Father declared in Matthew 3, at His baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father was pleased with Jesus before He even began His earthly ministry. I should also add that as much as the Father loved Jesus, it didn't immunize Jesus from pain or disappointment. The truth is that God's will and His love still allowed hardship into Jesus' life. In fact, it was God's actual love for His Son that established a cross as an unavoidable part of Jesus' journey. Friend, just because you find yourself in the midst of a trying situation or a tough circumstance, whether you find yourself in the midst of a betrayal or a heartache, a disappointment, maybe a health concern, a conflict, a difficulty. For that, for that matter, maybe you find yourself with a cross that you have to bear. If that's you, never, ever forget this. God loves you. What's going on in your life is not an indication that His love has changed or waned. Jesus promises, as the Father loved me, I love you. How amazing. It's with the implications of this reality that Jesus invites us. He says, abide in my love. Please understand the very fact this is presented as an invitation implies there's a choice involved. Jesus' love is not forced upon a person. It's not forced upon you, nor is it coerced. Unlike this world, God's love isn't conditional in any way. Instead, God's love, the only thing it requires is that you receive it and then enjoy it. You see, the exhortation in our text is clear. While Jesus' great love for you exists independent of you, you still have to make a choice whether or not you're going to receive it and abide in it. Abide in it. 
Again, this idea of abiding. And we talked about this extensively last Sunday. But it signifies a continuation, a continuance. See, Jesus is inviting you not just to come and experience his love once, but to continue in his love, to abide in his love. God's love changes everything inside of us. It works through us. This lesson, this concept, love. Within this evening, we find that it gets repeated here for a third time, which lets you know the idea of of, of his love for us and loving others and abiding in love. The idea of love. This was very important. Jesus repeating himself over and over. Now just saying, abide, friends, abide in my love. He says, you'll keep his commandments if you abide in his love. Jesus isn't saying when he connects obedience and love, he's not saying you have to obey or earn his love any more than Jesus had to earn the love of the Father. Again, it's the same type of love. Instead, the the connection between the commandment and love is that there should be a reciprocation in our lives from the experience of such a great love. Well, verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you. And that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you. This indicates a transition of sorts. With a very specific context being the ideas of abiding in his love. And obeying or keeping his commandments. So we should ask, what, what results from abiding in his love? What results from obeying his commands? That's the context. Well, Jesus says, he answers the rhetorical question, what results when you abide in my love and you keep my commandments? He says, my joy will remain in you, that your joy may be filled. He connects abiding in love and obeying to joy. In the Greek, this word full, it implies furnishing liberally to the point of utter completion. Like you could translate this more in our, our vernacular, that your joy may be filled to the brim. In this lengthy discourse, Jesus has already promised to demonstrate his love to these men, as well as to bestow to them his peace. Now the subject turns to joy. The truth, if we can be honest, is that while the world seeks happiness, the longing of every human heart is to find joy, happiness. Happiness is really nothing more than an emotion. An emotion that's tethered to circumstance and experience. But in contrast, joy is a state of being. Joy is permanent. Jesus is saying that the way to experience, to continually delight in His joy, regardless of what situation you might be facing, is to abide in Him and obey His commandments. Then you'll have joy. His incredible joy is the manifestation of your abiding and obeying. It's a shame that the world has popularized this notion that Jesus, and maybe you've heard this, that Jesus is a great killjoy. You follow Jesus? Lame. And what's actually worse about just that notion is that many Christians do nothing more than substantiate such a, an idea by being lame. 
and not having any fun. The world often thinks that Jesus is a killjoy because they look at Christians and they're like, they're miserable people. You can't have any fun with Jesus because, man, when the Christians come to the party, it gets lame. That's the perception. And there is some reality to the way Christians present ourselves. I can't stress this enough. Jesus did not come to this earth to rob the world of joy. He did not come into your life to make your life less enjoyable. Instead, Jesus came to provide a joy alien in this world. The world should look at Christians and be like, I want some of that because they have a blast. You know, in John 10, verse 10, Jesus boldly declared that he came that we may have life and that we might have it more abundantly. The implications being that apart from it, there is no life. Oh man, you're a Christian? That's lame. You're not even living. No, actually, apart from Christ, you don't even know what life is. Jesus does not restrict your ability to get the most out of life. Quite the contrary. The truth is that apart from Jesus and apart from His joy, you've not started living at all. You think you're having fun? You're a blind man running through the world. You're a blind man trying to run the hurdles. Oh, you're having a blast. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Christians can see. You know, I'll tell you the saddest thing in this world the saddest thing in this world, very simple, it's a joyless Christian. What a bummer. What a, what a sad misrepresentation of Jesus. You know, such a person I have found, they love Jesus enough where sin isn't all that enjoyable. But they haven't committed to Jesus enough to experience his joy. There are enough in the church that the world is not satisfying, but there are enough in, in the world that the church isn't satisfying. They haven't gone all in, and thus they're miserable. Never forget joy. If you want joy, how do you get joy? <laughs> Abide in His love and obey His commands. Knowing that Jesus is about to leave them, He again returns to how these men were to treat one another. Jesus is very concerned. I'm leaving. List out a lot of things. But one of the big concerns is how they were going to treat one another. He was worried about that. If you spend any time around these men, you would understand that was probably justified. Verse 12, repeating another theme, saying, he says, this is my commandment, you knuckleheads, that you love one another as I have loved you. Repetition. And again, he qualifies what love should look like. He says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, there's no debating the reality that Jesus genuinely cared. He cared for these men, but he cared that they loved one another. That they cared for one another. Again and again on this final night, with these 11 men, he's repeating the same commandment so that they wouldn't forget it. I wonder how this statement, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. I wonder how that impacted these men. 
following the crucifixion. In the moment Jesus said it, they, they didn't know it was coming, but I wonder how just 15 hours later, how that hit them, what Jesus was saying. John never forgot the lesson of love. It's probably why he writes extensively about this final evening and Jesus' love. He was known as the apostle of love. Love is a reoccurring theme in, in his epistles. Old legend, church history, is that when John was very old and couldn't say anything, and they would say, John, what's the one thing we need to know? John would look to his disciples and he would say, love one another. He's repeating this. And in light of what Jesus is saying, it's evident that his love for these men was great. It was great. It was deep. It was real. So real that he was willing to give everything for them. Jesus tells us to love one another as he loves us. Then he qualifies that love as being a love that would lay down its life. Saying that we're to lay down our lives for one another. That's heavy. But Jesus, and this is what I find encouraging, he didn't issue a commandment, add a qualifier, without modeling it for us. And while this reality is amazing in and of itself, the challenge is that this is the same type, this sacrificial, selfless love, this is what Jesus is commanding us to demonstrate to each other. You know, I, I wonder what the church would look like if we took that command seriously. I wonder what our church would look like if we loved each other in such a way. Now, pivoting on this idea of friendship, because he's introduced, then to lay down one's life for his friends. So he's introduced this idea of friendship. Now he's going to pick up on that, verse 14. He says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. In James chapter 2, verse 23, we read that the scripture was fulfilled, which said that Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness, and that Abraham was called the friend of God. Think about it for a moment. Up until this very evening, in the history of the world, only one man had ever been referred to as the friend of God. And that was Abraham. And yet in this evening, Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, you guys are my friends. You're my friends. We're his friends as his disciples. In the Greek, this word you, it's emphatic. Well, up until this point, these men had considered themselves disciples of a rabbi. And therefore, within that context, culturally, servants. Jesus is wanting them to know that his love for them, his relationship with them, it ran much deeper than just the love of a rabbi for a servant. They're friends. In Roman culture, a servant was nothing more than a human tool used by the master to accomplish a specific aim or a task. There was no relationship. No love between a servant and his master. And yet, the title of friend in Roman culture, it implied relationship, partnership, equality. In contrast to a servant, a friend was viewed as being a partner with the master in the work itself. 
You know, what strikes me most about this statement is the context. The backdrop by which Jesus is making it. Jesus called these men friends, knowing that in a few short hours, they wouldn't be all that friendly. That they would about face and run. You know, if you have kids, you, you tell, as a father, you tell your kids, you give them a warning. You say, hey, be careful. Be careful who you make your friends. You know, bad company corrupts good morals. Be careful who you pick as your friends. Parenting 101. Apparently, Jesus' heavenly father failed to teach the lesson because Jesus picked us as his friends. Well, verse 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. You think he wants them to get something out of the message, loving one another? You know, in case any of these men somehow believed, got haughty in and of themselves, you know, somehow that they deserved or have merited being a friend of Jesus. He wants to burst that bubble very quickly. Like, you're my friends, but don't don't let it go to your head. You didn't choose me. (laughs) Jesus says, "I, I chose you and I appointed you. You're my friends because I decided you were my friends. It's not that you earned it, not that you deserved it. I chose you. This word chose, it's an interesting word. It just means to pick. Like picking teams. And the word we find here, appointed, or in some of your translations, ordained, as it's translated the old King James, it just means to set aside for a specific purpose, to pick out and set aside. That's what he's saying. For these 11 men, what Jesus is articulating made complete sense. I think sometimes we, we overanalyze, scripturalize, theologize statements out of their context. Some will take this and, and try to build some argument about election. The disciples in the moment, that's had, they would have nothing to do with election. This, isn't, this wouldn't even manifest. Like In each of their specific interactions with Jesus, we know that there had been a point in time where Jesus, as a rabbi, called each of them with two words. Jesus would come along, whether it would be Peter or John or James or, or Levi, where he would say, he would, he would say, follow me. That was a traditional custom in a rabbinical order. A rabbi would work his way through town to town, teaching at synagogue and synagogue. There would be people that wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi, but they had to be chosen by the rabbi. You didn't choose, hey, I'm going to be your disciple. That's not how rabbinical culture worked. A rabbi had to choose you, had to ordain you. And they would do so with that phrase. A rabbi would say, come follow after me. And thus, now at that moment, a decision would be made. For these men, while they literally did not choose Jesus, and he chose them, it would be completely wrong to remove a free will component from the dynamic. The biblical narrative is clear that once Jesus extended the invitation for each of these men to come and follow after him to become a disciple, each man in that moment had to do something. They had to count the cost. We're told that in the scripture. I can go passage after passage after passage. Jesus said, come after me. And Peter had to make, do I, he laid down his nets. 
I'll count the cost. Weigh what the reality is and choose to become a disciple. This line, that you go and bear fruit. It's interesting with, with that in mind. Fruit in this context, notice what it's tied to. I've chosen you, I've ordained you, and you followed me. I've done this so that you may go and bear fruit. In that context, the context of going, the fruit seems to be the saving of souls. This particular exhortation would likely make more sense the moments before Jesus' ascension in Matthew 28 when he commands them to what? He says, go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And indeed, these men were chosen, they were ordained, they were picked, they were set aside, they were trained and they were raised, and then they were sent that they may bear fruit. And in doubt, they did. So, with that frame of reference being the fact that Jesus chose and appointed them as his friends to go into the world with the gospel, to bear fruit, to make disciples... Now Jesus transitions to a new section. You know, it's very important as Christians that we love one another. Why? Well, he says in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I've mentioned this before. Again, Greek is a very complex language. English, not so much. And in the Greek, when you come across this word, if, it comes with three specific class conditions. When you run across the word if, it can, it can really be translated one of three different ways. It can be if and it does. If and it doesn't. Or if and it might be. When Jesus says here, if the world hates you, we have the first class condition. It would be better translated, if the world hates you, and it does, it will. Since the world hates you, would be a better translation. The fact is that our comfortable American Christian culture has completely lost sight of this particular reality. Because the world hates Jesus as his disciples, we should expect to be hated as well. Jesus adds, if you were of the world, again, if and you aren't of the world, the world would love you. If you were of the world, you aren't, but if you were, the world would love you. And yet, because you are not of the world, Jesus is honest to you and I. Because we've been chosen and appointed, because we're his friends, we are not friends with this world. They hated him and they hate us. As you know, the United States of America was originally founded by a persecuted class of Protestant Christians who fled England seeking religious freedoms in a new world. Not only was their wish ultimately attained through a revolt against tyranny, but within the very framework of our independence, it was constituted that America would always preserve this core right, the freedom of religious belief, assembly, and expression. It really is an amazing fact that such a foundational concept has stood the test of time. As a result, not only has this particular freedom appealed 
to other religious minorities around the world who also desire such protection. But the freedom of religion has preserved the environment whereby Christianity has flourished seemingly without opposition. For some 250 years, the church in America has been largely insulated from the experience of virtually every other generation of Christian, as well as the experience of most Christians living in any other place but America right now. We have it weird, unique, different. Most amazingly, while we've been largely immune from persecution, never forget that more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in all other centuries combined. In many ways, over the last two decades, American Christians have experienced severe consternation. Why? Because we've seen the protections that we've enjoyed slowly begun to erode. As our country becomes more secular, and Christian influence continues to be minimized, as we transition as Christians from being the majority to the minority, our religious freedoms are under attack. There's no doubt. The truth is that the church, most of us, we're not ready for what's coming. And it is coming. And a very real fear that our religious liberties would continue to be taken away if Hillary Clinton won office. We were so desperate that in 2016, evangelical Christians overwhelmingly decided to align themselves with and vote en masse for Donald Trump. Think about that. And let's be completely honest. Aside from his pledge to defend the right of of the unborn, Christians, let's be honest, We willingly laid aside the moral litmus test we've always used in electing our leaders because Donald Trump promised to ensure religious protection. If you've been around Calvary 316 for any length of time, I rarely, if ever, talk politics, especially from the pulpit. That being said, in an act of just pure transparency, I will be honest with you that the increased militancy of the LGBTQ lobby, the weaponization of the courts by progressive progressive imposing a liberal agenda, and the demonization of fundamental Christian beliefs concerning marriage and gender under the Obama administration were some of the main reasons that I held my nose and voted for Donald Trump. With these cultural changes afoot, and the fact that I saw Christian persecution on the horizon, I voted for the president as a matter of last resort. And I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say that that was likely the same justification many of you had as well. And yet, here's my point. Jesus is saying something to these men 2,000 years ago. That we as Christians living in America, an America that is rapidly changing, that we need to get our minds wrapped around. Friend, the secular world that rejects Jesus hates us because we are not of this world. 
and they hate him. I'm not going to bore you with all the data. (laughs) It's extensive and compelling. But the undeniable truth is that every poll on our changing cultural landscape validates the fact that the America we once knew and the one that allowed the Christian church to operate freely is quickly changing for the worse. Sure, I can make the case that President Trump, Vice President Pence, have to a large extent subdued the tsunami that was heading our direction. As just a simple example, the two constitutionalists that were placed on the Supreme Court appear actually interested in protecting religious liberties, as well as preserving individually held religious beliefs. But that being said, regardless of who's president, Donald Trump is not our savior. It doesn't matter who's president. The truth is that the Christian community, you and I, need to prepare ourselves for what is coming and what is inevitable. As the secular tide continues to rise, creating what will largely be a post-Christian America, so will hatred and persecution. Our Christian experience, and this is what we forget, your Christian experience is not normal in any historical context whatsoever. The liberty and freedom you've had to follow Jesus without persecution is not normal. It's abnormal. And friends, it will normalize sooner than later. The day is coming. It will cost us something to follow Jesus. Christ follower, without question, in the years ahead, your boldness to stand on biblical principles will come at a serious cost to you and your family. As your biblical beliefs become more and more relegated to a minority opinion, they will be attacked. They will be frowned upon. It's simply a reality in today's political environment Right now, publicly speaking, the truth about sin is classified as hate speech and is not tolerated, especially if it's of a sexual origin. The day is coming when Christians will be removed from the marketplace of commerce as well as ideas because of our biblical belief. And when that day comes, we will just join the multitudes, the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us and have experienced the same. Now with that in mind, verse 20, we're going to read a few verses. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Believer, in the presence of hate, 
it's silly for you to expect harmony. Because the world hates you for what you believe and who you follow, it's only logical that they will persecute you. I know this is not a very happy-go-lucky, encouraging Bible study. Take it up with Jesus. Jesus points out that they will even hate you without cause, for they hated him without cause. The frank reality is hate doesn't need a reason. Hate never needs a reason to lash out. It doesn't need a justification for its vitriol. As Christians living in America, we've had it good for too long. And yet times are a-changing, and we need to expect rejection. And yet, while we should expect persecution, there's a promise I love that's kind of tucked in here. He says that there will be some that will see you and hear your words and will respond. There will be people that accept Christ as a Savior. You know, when the church has always exploded, the, like and numerically exploded when revivals happen, it's often come in the midst of incredible persecution. Persecution does something to refine the fire so that it's brighter in the darkness. Now, in the context of what was coming, Jesus' direction this very evening, he speaks candidly to these men, citing two motivations for the persecution he was about to experience. The first reason centers upon the fact that, that the men that are about to persecute him, they didn't know God. He says, look back at the text, he says, they do not know him who sent me. The irony of that statement is who were the men instigating the persecution? They were the religious establishment. They were the men that should have known God, but they didn't. The second reason for their hatred and subsequent persecution was also the fact that the very presence of Jesus removed any excuse for their sin. Not only did Jesus uproot their religious system by, quote, doing among them works which no one else did. You know, caring for the poor, healing the sick, preaching the good news and the gospel. But Jesus also came and in coming redefined what righteousness actually looks like. No man in the presence of Jesus can say he's good enough. Maybe in the presence of one another I can say I'm good enough in comparison to you. But not in the comparison of Jesus. In light of Jesus, no one can say that he is good. If he's the standard bearer, their sin was on display and they hated him for it. But Jesus says, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Earlier, in this discourse, Jesus said that he would pray for the Father to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus declares, I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit. The point here is that the Father, yeah, would send the Spirit. And Jesus would also send the Spirit. And in another place, the Spirit would come on his own volition. The three members of the triunity are working together. And this divine plan. Notice the future tense of this promise. Jesus says, when the helper comes. We have the benefits of hindsight. Knowing that the context of what's being referenced, we find in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. In light of the promised persecution, the promise here for us is that we would have a helper. The world will hate you. The world will persecute you. But that's okay. Because you're thinking, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can stand in the moment. It's all right. My helper will be with you. 
you will have my helper, the Spirit. Not only would the Spirit testify of Jesus on his own through you, but the Spirit will help you also bear witness when the time comes. Now, there are no chapter breaks, so we're going to cover just the first four verses of chapter 16 that continue the subject matter. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. (laughs) They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers service to God. That was ominous. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Kind of closing, Jesus here pulls no punches. Tells these men what's coming. Preparing them. He's honest, brutally so. And he is so that they would not stumble when persecution inevitably came their way. But in contrast to stumbling, they would stand and bear witness of Jesus, even when the consequences would be severe. Jesus says that initially they're going to put you out of the synagogues. For us, that doesn't mean much. But for a group of loyal Jewish men, this was difficult to hear. Being put out of the synagogue, that was akin to excommunication. Kicked out of Judaism. And by default, you were removed from Jewish society. Because these men would take a stand and bear witness to Jesus, these men would become outcasts in their own communities. Aside from this, Jesus affirms that the time was coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Not only is Jesus saying that martyrdom was inevitable, and indeed every one of these men would face death for the sake of Christ, But what's worse is Jesus says the men doing the evil deed would believe that they were acting in the service of God. What blows my mind about this passage is that it seems that Jesus here is foretelling what was going to happen at the hands of a specific man. A man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul when he encountered Jesus. But that Saul would persecute the early church. And he would do so believing he was acting in the name of God. You know, today, last few years, we have seen the full-blown slaughter of Christian brothers and sisters living in the Middle East. And we have seen them slaughtered, how? At the name, at the hands of Islamic radicals convinced that they're doing the will of God, of Allah. I I don't mean this morning (laughs) To paint an ominous picture. This is probably not a very seeker-friendly message. Again, we're just teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and I'm trying to do service to the text. I'm not painting an ominous picture because, well, Jesus is doing that on his own. But please, Jesus is warning his disciples. He's warning us that our interactions with the unbelieving world will not be easy. Again, the application is difficult for us because it has been. But it won't remain that way long. Following Jesus, (laughs) historically speaking, the decision to follow Jesus is probably one of the most dangerous decisions a person can ever make. Literally can cost you everything. It's complete folly 
for us to assume or to seek friendship with a culture that fundamentally hates us. I repeat, our Christian experience is the outlier. We're going to get to heaven. We're going to talk about what, what following Jesus looked like in our context. And people historically are going to be like, no way. You get to do what? You get to gather in an industrial park and worship without fear? Yeah, man. And not only that, we get to go out those doors and tell other people about Jesus without fear. No way. I bet you that was awesome. How many people did you tell about Jesus? Oh, I don't know. I was, I was pretty busy. Uh, the fact is our, our comfort has led to complacency. Persecution, nothing like persecution to stir you out of that. The majority of Christians have never enjoyed a culture that wasn't hostile to their faith in Jesus. So when ours changes, get over it. Sure, I will concede that it's not a foregone conclusion. America stays on its present trajectory. But I will say this, that it will only be via a great awakening brought forth by the power of the Holy Spirit working through a church that teaches the Bible and not favorable politicians that will stem the growing tide. You're wanting to keep the church from experiencing persecution. We should pray for revival, not for elected leaders. Though we should pray for elected leaders for other reasons. My point this morning with this text in mind is to remind you what is true regardless. Something we've forgotten. Because you are not of this world, since Jesus has chosen you out of this world, never forget the world hates you and will persecute you for his sake. Our job, friend, is not to befriend the world, but bear witness of the king and the kingdom beyond that isn't of this world. So, Father, Lord, with that heavy exhortation,